Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Paola Beck. Dr. Beck is an orthopedic trauma surgeon who practices medicine in the Black Forest region of Germany. She has completed extensive training in both orthopedic trauma surgery as well as general trauma surgery. She is also on the board for the Female Surgery Group in Germany, whose name I wish I could accurately pronounce, but I'm pretty sure it's Dschirurgen-ish. It was very interesting to hear her journey and learn about the culture of surgery in Germany. It is my absolute pleasure to share with you this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Paula Beck. Dr. Paula Beck, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. Coming to you from Germany. I know we got a six hour time difference, I think it is, but I'm really, really excited to speak with you and just learn about your journey and kind of the life of a female orthopedic surgeon in Germany. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. It's three o'clock in the afternoon here. So it's um, first of May we're recording this, and this is the German Workers' Day, and I have the day off. So perfect opportunity. Perfect. Oh my goodness. Um, well, Paula, I would yes. love to hear in your own words, kind of your background, i.e. hometown, your undergraduate work, your medical training, as well as your post-training years. Okay, so um, I was born in Berlin, the capital of Germany, but I grew up in, in a kind of small village near Cologne. Um, which is in the center west of Germany. And I have one brother who's three years younger than me. And my parents uh, are, they're immigrants from Argentina, who came from Argentina to Germany just before I was born. So mm. I grew up speaking in German and Spanish. And my parents were doctors in Argentina. So I had some kind of a medical background, but they both pursued uh, different careers in Germany. So I had no real doctor role models in my family. But however, I remember since I, since, since I started to coherently think, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor somehow. Mm. And um, yeah, well, after school, I, I went to med school at the first private university in Germany. It's the Wittenherdecke University. And mm. they have um, a strong emphasis on not only teaching all the, all the details you need to know, but also like making you a kind of well-rounded individual. They have um, a thing called uh, Studium Fundamentale, which is, uh, which, uh, how do I explain that? Yeah, where you don't learn about medical stuff, but like anything, literally anything else. You can do literature classes or music mm. or woodworking, you name it, political science. And so um, their idea is like to generate whole personality thing. Right. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's cool. And also they have a very patient-centered approach in uh, in how they teach medicine. So this was really good time. I spent uh, six months in Italy in Torino during my studies at the, wow. uh, with the Erasmus program, which is the European program to uh, an exchange program for students, which was really, I had a really, really great time there and I learned a lot and yeah after finishing and getting my medical degree 
in I did five years of general surgery. Mm-hmm. So um, in in Germany, there's like different tracks you can go. I think it's similar to what you do in the US. It's not the same because you don't have these very well-defined years. Um, you just enter a hospital and it depends how big the hospital is, whether you can do your whole education there or not. Maybe you have mm. to switch it. Um, but uh, then you have just after the certain time of training, like for general surgery, it's six years. Uh, your boss has to to sign that you did a certain number of operations and you do an oral board exam and then your your board's um, certified. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like in these first five years of general surgery training, I I did a lot of different things. I did a bit of um, inten- a year of intensive care and uh, some months of thoracic surgery and some months of endocrine surgery and general surgery. But I somehow I did not find my home base. I, did, I always felt like a bit lost. I wanted to learn more about everything and I wasn't sure where where I would end up. And um, I also started doing uh, pre-hospital medicine, which is somehow embedded here. If you want to be a, if you are a pre-hospital emergency um, doctor, you can you can be from like a lot of such specialties. It's just mm. important that you have some link to emergency medicine. So as a surgeon, you can do some extra qualifications and then go and do pre-hospital medicine. So that's what I started doing then. Also, and so I had like a lot of. Um, interesting things I was doing, but I I did not feel truly at home. Right. And uh, for the last year of general surgery, I needed to do some uh, bone-related stuff, like trauma, um, orthopedic trauma surgery. So uh, I decided to switch hospitals, and uh, I ended up going from a big university hospital to a really small rural hospital in the Black Forest. Mm. And. Uh, there I found um, my mentor. She's uh, She was the chief, or she still is the chief of uh, orthopedic trauma surgery in this little hospital. And um, yeah, she really, I think, I think she was the first one with her. It was the first time I felt like I could truly be a surgeon. And right. uh, she she gave me enough freedom to to keep learning at my pace and to explore but I, I, I always knew that she would be there if I needed her so yeah. like she found the the right way to let me become independent and so I stayed with her and as she was an orthopedic trauma surgeon I started training for orthopedic trauma surgery I did my boards for general surgery and then I went on doing orthopedic trauma Wow! until yeah until she sat me down and said okay Paula you're doing great here but uh I need you to go away because you need to see a big hospital and you need to see big trauma stuff. You can't just train here in our little right, right. hospital in the forest. Um, and so I went on to Essen University Hospital where I have spent the last four and a half years doing doing ortho trauma at a level one setting in a university hospital, wow. which was great, offered a lot of opportunities. I, of course, saw a lot of stuff I did ever see before in the small hospital. And uh, it opened new worlds for me. And additionally, I did a, a master's degree in uh, trauma surgery from the Queen Mary University of London, which mm-hmm. also, again, opened new worlds and showed me a lot more about what trauma surgery can be. Mm. Um, 
yeah, but somehow I, I missed the Black Forest. And so since uh, three months, I've been back now in the big hospital next door to my little hospital from before. And uh, okay. I'm, so I, I hope to find the best of two worlds, like big trauma surgery and the beautiful scenery and uh, quality of life you get in the Black Forest. So that's where I am right now. Wow. Is it, you know, you being in, in the forest, as you say, <laughs> do you, what are there different types of injuries that you see trauma-wise in comparison to what you would see if you were in a more quote-unquote like urban like in a city is that yes sort of? ab absolutely absolutely in Essen which is located in the Ruhr Valley which is like the biggest industri ex-industrial area there are a lot of big cities and, and that's very dense population we had um, a lot of penetrating trauma Mm. especially um, stabbings. Right. Um, we are not yet at your, uh, at your yeah, level. Yeah, we're bad. <laughs> you're, <laughs> we're you're bad. Really, I'm sorry to say this, but looking from outside, it's really horrible with your yeah. gun violence. Yes, our problems. gun violence is very bad. It is, it is. We yeah. don't have that so much, thank God, right. but we saw a big increase like in stabbings, mm. especially um Whereas here, where it's like a more an area where people come to to do holiday to be on holiday, we have more uh, road accidents or also sports accidents from um, biking, hiking, skiing, right. Right. especially um, all the the silver agers, seniors driving around on e-bikes on holidays. That's always. Yes. That is my mother-in-law. I'm so afraid because they, they, so my father-in-law had cycles, right? Cycles for real cycles. And then my mother-in-law goes with him, but is on an e-bike. And so the speeds at which they're going at right. is, and so, and what's crazy is just, I see, I've been to so many clinics and I've like seen so many things where it's just like, my, it just gives me palpitations because I just know it's like, mm, this is going to be a great display humorous. That's just going to like, you know what I mean? It's just going to be like absolutely shattered. Um, yeah. and it's just like, it, I, it's funny. Cause like you, I just have so, like of what could happen and all the stories that I do hear, but understanding like cycling, it's a nice low impact exercise. That's very good. You know what I mean? And so I'm, I'm struggling with the separation of living one's life, but also understanding like there are risks with, you know, fun activities. Yeah, that's right. But actually, there is risk with any activity. So at least that is let, true. Let them have fun. <laughs> I know. I know. Exactly. I know. It's it's funny, like, um, like whether or not uh, we're going to have um, our son, Noah, let him have a trampoline. I am oh, like, no, 100%. I'm like, no, exactly. Oh, so you God. and I have the exact same reaction where I'm just like, absolutely <laughs> not. He may go to a trampoline park, potentially, but like I, like there's going to be adult supervision like we're going to tell him you're not allowed to break your neck those sorts of things um but we are not owning a trampoline like i, I that was like a hard absolute no uh, I, I oh my god no yeah. trampolines no horses no mo motorcycles yes no motorcycles until you can rod your own femur that's that's my rule <laughs> sounds like a good one. oh my word <laughs> um and so i was hoping you can kind of talk a little bit about why are you exposed when during your training to like pediatric orthopedics and oncology and hand and like those sorts of things? And so that's kind of how you choose your subspecialty or is it more just sort of you with your mentor who 
kind of introduces you to the world of trauma and then that's how you go forth and choose your subspecialty? Actually, I think it's a mixture of both. Mm. It depends where you get your training. Right. Um, and, and I think that's why I'm so thankful to my mentor because for, for sending me away, although I didn't want to go. But um, I, I think you need to see everything there is to be able to decide what you want to do ultimately. And in essence, we had um, a lot of different specialties. There was a big uh, tumor, tumor orthopedics. And uh, we were like a reference center for uh, children's trauma. So we mm-hmm. got a lot of that. Um, Trampolines. But there's not a lot of trampolines, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and also hand surgery, and and so you you can like somehow pick and see which path you want to go, and mm. uh, yeah, nice. and and I think, but but you can only pick if you know what you're getting yourself into, and so I think if you do all your training in a in a small hospital, you, it's really difficult to know what what there is. But also, right. it's as like a surgeon in training, picking a thing is one thing and then really getting the opportunity to grow in that field is another one. So you also need personal mentors who want you to succeed in that field. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure if we in Germany have the perfect solution for that, because I feel like it depends a lot from where you start or who finds you on your way and, and who, whose path you can follow to end up somewhere where you can you want to be and um mm. i yeah and i i think that's something we we have to rethink about how do do we want to structure our training or how do we want to right yeah show show our young surgeons what possibilities they are yeah do you think the role of social media and i feel like surgeons are getting onto social media and showing what they're able to do. Do you think that that may help to play a role in just allowing folks in different parts of Germany to actually see, Hey, this is a possibility for me. Do you think that in the next decade or so social media may be able to play a part in that? Uh, um, I would say yes, but that's, because I like Twitter and I've been on Twitter for a lot of time and it, it, but um, I'm not sure if I'm like in a bubble if I just think it's important because it's important for me I, right. Right. and it's I think it's I, I mean I, I just turned 40 so I'm also not uh, I'm also far away from the generation of, of doctors who are just starting their journey right now I mean they're 15 years younger than me and mm-hmm. and so maybe they have completely other outlook on where they get their information from i think it's something that should come from the universities they should really give you the opportunity um to to see different parts of of what being a doctor or being a surgeon is about and um, but also i think we should have to um make it some kind of some somehow mandatory in training to see the, right. to really see different parts of right the surgical path you choose or you want to choose yeah no i am i am fortunate that you know at my residency program you see all of the you know nine subspecialties both when you're a junior resident as well as when you're a senior resident and what's kind of what's nice about it is like you're a junior you're just like you're kind of a deer in headlights and you're just kind of walking about um and you're kind of just like seeing everything first and then kind of when you're a senior resident and you kind of like have your feet under you a little bit more 
at that point, you feel like you've kind of chosen your path a little bit and you can kind of pick out what you sort of need to really sink into your mind from mm-hmm. all of the different nine subspecialties. You know, like um, I was, I just did a foot and ankle case, like an ankle arthrodesis with my attending, one of my foot and ankle attendings at the VA. And what was nice about it, it was just like a bread and butter anterior approach to the ankle. And like knowing that anatomy, getting down to the ankle joint, like that's like, okay, like that's what I really, really need to sink in. And like the screw trajectories about the actual ankle orthodesis, I'm like, yes, this is very important. But like for me, it was like getting down there. I was like, let me make sure I can do that like 100%, you know, those sorts of things. And so it's, that's kind of the nice part about seeing something as subspecialty twice, which has been really, really nice. Yeah, this sounds like a really great approach. So when you start first year of residency, you already know what you're going to be doing in month two of last year of residency somehow. We, so I think it like, I think it depends on the resident. Like for me, I got an early exposure to oncology and everything else. I was just like, I don't like it as much as oncology. (laughs) Really, (laughs) how I went through with everything. Um, Because it was just like, you know, I, I saw myself like, could I do this all day? You know, mm-hmm. um, but there are some people who literally decide their fourth year, um, which is kind of when we apply uh, of what they're going to do. And I think it kind of depends on um, who the resident is um, in terms of when they decide their quote unquote subspecialty. Um, and now there are some folks who are doing two fellowships rather than just one. Um, that's an option that exists. Um, but yeah, I think as you go through, I feel like when you go through your first time, you kind of see like, is this something that I can do all day? Um, which is nice. Yeah. Um, you spoke of Twitter and so I would like to talk about Twitter. So you have been on Twitter and your profile states that you are a trauma surgeon and emergency physician an aspiring hand surgeon an ATLS instructor, and a mountain doctor. Now I was hoping you can kind of like delve into kind of what all those words means and all just that statement in general. Um, yes, I feel like that's more or less what reflects what I like to do in, in a, and what I've been trained for. I'm right. a trauma surgeon right now doing orthopedic trauma and but in, in Germany, like the orthopedic surgeons also are the, the trauma surgeons because somehow in Germany it's, it's bone related. I know that it's different in other European countries and maybe also for you. Uh, so we are the, the leaders and the, if there's like major trauma coming to the, how do you say shock, shock room? Do you say recess room? How do you say? Uh, yeah. Resuscitation room. Yeah. 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 That place where everyone gathers and the yes, yes, injured yes. comes in this would be the mm-hmm. racist room. Okay. So we usually the orthopedic trauma surgeon on call will lead the these procedures. Oh wow. And um yeah, so that's that's what I I do. I just like the the big trauma cases and from starting pre hospitally until they end up at in the OR and then um and also the the part where they're on intensive care, so like that's the the world where most, where I like to move. Right. And uh, yeah, part of this is, is being an ATLS instructor. I mean, mm-hmm. ATLS. I think it's pretty self-explaining if you you're in the world of trauma surgery, um, advanced yes. trauma life support. Um, 
and I love being an instructor. I love the community and I also love all the sneak peeks into other hospitals, like talking mm -hmm. to the um to the pupils or how do you say the um the learners provider yeah the learners yeah, yeah, yeah. who are, who are going to be providers and to come to mm -hmm. our courses and I love finding out about their conditions and what they like and they don't like and I also like to see their development over the course like they start and are super afraid and they uh, go out and, and you can see they have like a manual they can they can uh, they get help and they know what to do right. and they like to see how confident they become in those two days and how much it will help a patient care I really like that a lot and it's also a beautiful family. I got so many role models from ATLF. It's really, wow. it's really great. I love that's that. Awesome. Yeah. So to and, confirm, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, no, to it's confirm, fine. You, so you are, is, is it your orthopedic trauma and general trauma? Because in our, yeah. in, here it's like, like we're, when we go into the trauma bay, we're there just to kind of like go in and like, you know, sheet a pelvis if we need to, but you're the one who's like running the code. You're, if the patient needs to go to the operating room because there's a small bowel perforation or whatever, are you doing the like small bowel resection or is that someone who like you basically lead it and then when they go up, general surgery then comes in and does like the small bowel resection? Yeah, like the second one. We, okay. the orthopedic trauma surgeons do bone stuff. Wow. Like okay. Pelvic yeah, yeah, yeah. And fix x and whatever you you need to do but we usually lead the code and and then we we have to like summon all the others and ask them to please right. do their their part vascular surgeons and uh and visceral surgeons um, yeah. to, wow. to do their, you heard their all part. the cats together that's hard yeah somehow uh, yeah. that's why i think it's important to like think of a trauma patient in a very holistic way and i'm very thankful for my general surgery training because i think that gives me an, an advance in that yeah. Well, that's yeah. awesome. And I know that you have been on Twitter and social media and you're someone who who appreciates it and kind of finds value in it. What is it that you have, why, why have you dedicated um, time to Twitter and rather than just being like, mm, let me just do something else? Um, okay. It just, it, it started really as um like hanging around on social media it was never somehow intentional <laughs> it's more of a free time thing and i had an anonymous uh, twitter account where i just like hang hang around and uh, um but when i started uh, when when i knew i wanted to do the trauma masters in london mm -hmm. I um, saw that a lot of the of faculty and a lot of um, ex-students were on Twitter. So I, I switched accounts and got a, a real one, a, a grown-up account, <laughs> more or less, actually, <laughs> grown-up. And, um, and I, I like uh, the connections you get there. I like to see a lot of um, cases being posted. And I love the discussion that rises also from how people from different uh, backgrounds approach surgery in different mm -hmm. ways, and um, especially trauma surgery. So um, yeah, I like that a lot. And I also think um, in Germany, we're not when it's there's not that a big med Twitter or author Twitter community as there right. is in the US and in the, the UK, I think, but mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm more of a lurker. But uh, I, yeah, I think it's also interesting to see um, new papers published will be discussed there. Like you don't need to read every paper, but you can see, okay, that may be interesting and then you can dig in. So mm -hmm. um, I like it just to, to broaden my horizon and to get like sneak peeks of things like that could be interesting. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I enjoy I, it. 
Yeah, no, I think what's nice is kind of learning of little quick tricks from folks. That's kind of been the nice thing where it's just like, I remember someone was doing like a bulky Jones splint for, I think it was like some calc fracture or what have you. And they were using in the OR, we have these like egg crates to help stabilize uh, or help like basically, you know, pad the bony prominences when you're positioning a patient. Um, And they use the egg crates um, as part of their splint. So rather than kind of using like a whole bunch of like, uh, like cast padding or web roll or what have you, they basically use this foam padding that the OR normally has around and it's far more accessible than kind of the typical bulky Jones, like literally the cotton that's like two inches thick. And it was kind of like a nice, like when you're in a pinch and you need a super, super, super well padded thing, just using an egg crate that is normally a patient patter um, as a, you know, something that you can put in your splint. And I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. You know? So I think I, I, I've appreciated those sorts of little tips and tricks from different surgeons. Yeah. And then of course the the connections you make, like, I mean, we met over Twitter. Yes, we did. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I love, I love that. On your Twitter profile, you have the website link for an organization I'm going to butcher this name. A D, um, can, how do you say it? Dechirurgenen. Yes. Which is, yes. as you say, the female surgeons. Um, yes. So I was hoping you can talk about this group because you you are the, oh gosh, the. the <laughs> I'm a, a Beisitzerin, which is, uh, which is part of the board. Not part not, of the board. Not okay. exactly the, the president's and, and yeah, but like some kind of. You're, you're on the board. Yeah, I'm on the board. No. You're on the board. <laughs> I'm on the board. <laughs> so can you tell the story? Because this was an organization that was founded in 2021. So kind of a, exactly. a new organization. So can I sort of speak about the story of how this organization came to be? Yes. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, Die Chirurginnen is um, like a group of German speaking female surgeons. That's literally all, all you need is to, to be part of it or um, to become a member is you need to be a woman and uh, be a surgeon, want to be a surgeon. We also accept students or have mm-hmm. been a surgeon. Like we have also retired members. Um, and it was founded in January of 2021. So we had still very pandemic uh, surroundings and a lot of stuff was going on online which i think facilitated a lot the 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 start of this Mm -hmm. organization because they the founding members did every like almost everything online and they started the zoom meeting i think with 12 people saying hey we should somehow connect and as like everyone was maybe a little bored at home and uh, (laughs) and talking online had just started to become normal the new normal it gained a lot of momentum very quickly and um, the association and the chirurgian wants to just connect uh, female surgeons and um, because there's still as I think everywhere around the world there are more guys than girls choosing surgery or becoming surgeons or working in surgery and we just want to change that by Mm -hmm. um, by being a good network and by giving each other opportunities and by providing mentorship. And uh, yeah, the 
um, the association has grown a lot. We have right now about 1,700 members. So that's wow. what we gained yes, in, yeah. in a bit over two years. And we're doing um, a lot of stuff. We have, we have a mentoring program, which is, which is really great, which gets like hand matched. So we have two girls uh, reading every request from being a mentor or being a mentee, and they see who's best for each other. So that's really, that's really great. And um, we do, uh, we do online, uh, we have something called an online academy. So once a month, one of us will just tell something interesting about her job or some, some specialty. So I talked about, but I always like to talk about trauma thoracotomies and <laughs> for an hour, for example. But there's also like um, uh, tumor orthopedists who will talk about how to recognize uh, tumors and x-rays or mm-hmm. next next time there will be maybe maybe an endocrine surgeon talking about their specialty and so we we get a big uh, variation of of interesting stuff and it's a zoom lecture and uh, everyone can join in and it's really great wow. so that's what we do and uh, yeah we we try to increase visibility of women in surgery like we're on on social media and also on the big um how do you say congress uh, you know if everyone meets once a year um, yeah, like a like a meeting, like a annual meeting. Conference, and yeah, conference, conference. and meeting, yeah, yeah. yeah something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. So we and and right now it, it it did really escalate. So we get invited also to design sessions and um and to, to give talks. And we want also to um have more women speak on those conferences because I, I don't know how it works in in the U.S. But we always have like a part is abstracts you you give there and they accept you or they don't, and right. another part is invited speakers. And invited mm-hmm. speakers has always been like a boys' club. Yeah, we have mannels. We call them mannels, where it's like yeah, right, exactly. Mantle, and you just like and you see them, and you're just like, how? There are so many experts that yeah. just so happen to be women, and it's and yes, we I you know what's funny is there's a lot of there's still room to grow, you know, there even is. even here too, there like is. where. Because yeah. I think what we haven't really touched on, because it affects journal articles as well, um, like the number of female senior authors and primary authors and like the prominent mm-hmm. journals, there's a huge discrepancy with that. Um, yes, editorials, again, a huge discrepancy. Um, what I think people haven't looked into yet is podcasting as well. As someone who does podcasting, um, and I can see, you know, everything under the sun with regard to the type of orthopedic podcasts that exist. Many of them feature male voices, um, in terms of like, even just from the societies, from the journals, like those sorts of things, it's kind of, and it's, so it's yet another avenue in which the voice that is heard and the voice that's compa- conveying orthopedic knowledge is not necessarily, it, it's just all these men. And it's just like, this could be different, you know? And um, it, I, I think that there is an awareness of it, um, but we still have work to do. We have, we have. And right now, last week, there was our um, the annual meeting of the general surgeons in Munich. And one of our members was co-hosting this meeting. Mm-hmm. And she managed to have 47 percent of chairs being females which is unheard of and we were so proud of her yeah that was really really great but um so that's a a really a great achievement and Mm. i think that's also now a spotlight has been on that and we can refer to that in the future we can say hey but last year in in munich it was like that so 
right. why would we change back? So this is really, really a great achievement. And uh, But she told that she asked a lot of women and the guys always accept the chairing chair or talks. Mm-hmm. And the girls will be, the, the women will be like, oh, I'm not an expert. Or, mm, there's someone right, else right. who knows more. And right, I right. think we also need to work on our mindset. And so mm-hmm. it's super important, I think, just to be more visible as female surgeons and also as grown-up female surgeons. So mm-hmm. not just be in the OR and, and doing a great job, but but yes. also talking about it or, or yeah, being yes. being at the conferences and being part of the boards of the mm-hmm. associations, just um, yes. to to show the younger ones that mm-hmm. we are there. Right. No, impostering. It's such a, like, that's <laughs> something that I struggle with for sure. Like my, like what I consider myself for like me doing a good job is something that's not only done like well, but like eloquently which certainly does get in the way of whereas for some of my colleagues, them doing something very well is like, it, it happened. Like it went back in, you know what I mean? Where like my, <laughs> like, you know, like my right now I'm like with the posterior approach, how can I most eloquently elevate the external rotators and the capsule and like preserve the labrum in case I'm doing a hemi and like my level of like where I feel like I am like absolutely extraordinary is like, how can I do it in the most eloquent fashion? Whereas like some of my colleagues, they're just like, I got it off. You know what I mean? And so I think it's just, yeah, exactly. Like it happened. (laughs) They went back in. I like sutured some stuff together. Um, So I think like impostering is certainly like a big, like there it's, it's a big deal. And I think that, you know, I think we talk about it, but I think just understanding that it's so it's, it's very, very prominent. And like, I, what's funny is I'm doing a, a study, like a survey study about imposter syndrome. And okay. so we first started like a pilot survey for some folks here at Yale. And I kid you not, there were so many male surgeons who came up to me and they were like, what is this? And I I'm know. Like, I was, wanted to say that they don't know about they it. Don't know what, they it don't know what imposter syndrome is. Yeah. And I was just like, wait, what do you mean you don't know what this is? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> I've never heard of this before. And I'm like, that's lovely. Um, and so I literally had to explain what imposter syndrome was for them to be able to like take a survey. And I was just like, this is the problem. Um, I know it's, 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 it's okay. We're, we're talking about it. We'll get better. It's all good. Oh my word. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's always the same. I, I try to avoid it, but I also catch myself. I, I, but I also think it's, it's a difficult path to maneuver because on the one hand, you want to be perfect, right? You yes. owe the patients to be perfect. perfect. And so I find myself like agonizing about the screw length, which in the mm-hmm. post of x-rays, like, oh, I should have taken the one, two millimeters shorter or so. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm the worst surgeon in the world. How could I do that? Right. And on, on the other hand, I, I think you need um, you to, to, be, to be really be in the flow. You, you need to accept that life's, never perfect without right. without but then accepting results which are not good enough so it's yeah it's, it's a balance yeah it's a balance yeah. it's, it's a and balance. it's a difficult balance i think i had i had an, ex- an interesting experience i was doing a case with my male colleague and i wanted like to screw the tower in to this mm-hmm. locking plate to drill and somehow I, it, it did not um i, I didn't manage and tried two right. times I right. got frustrated and I gave it to him and he tried once and didn't manage and gave it to the, to the scrub nurse and said, it's broken. 
Right. I was like, wow, okay. So I immediately doubted myself. Right. Yeah. And he was like, okay, it needs to be the material. Right. So he just did not for a second think that it could have been him. While I was I was so sure it was me who wasn't able to screw that thing in. Right. I mean, I've been doing I've been I've been doing this kind of surgery for ten years, so I think I should but I immediately doubted myself. I was, right. and it was like really a light bulb moment. I stood there and said, "Okay, wow, <laughs> this yeah. this is a big renovation. Thank you for that." And so we changed the tower and everything went fine. But wow. I was like, I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> what are we doing to ourselves?" It's so true. It's so true. Uh, and I think what what's so interesting, and we were talking about this a little bit off air, is that in in the German language the literal word for surgeon has it, it's literally a male word correct yeah yeah it is it is this surgeon if you say der chirurg um it is it is supposed to stand for everyone but it's the male version of the world so if you refer to a female surgeon if i introduce myself i wouldn't say ich bin ein chirurg i would say ich bin eine chirurgin because otherwise it would be grammatically not correct right. or sound strange. So if um, if you refer to surgeons in general, you're always referring to male surgeons because that's how the language is made. Mm. And this is really a thing. I mean, like our there's um, there's a journal in Germany, which uh, are, there are a lot of medical journals in Germany which have the names of the professions. So for years, until last year, where they finally changed it, which is also when it was der chirurg so it was always the male surgeon and mm. we were all the women were women were just supposed to feel like they fit in although right they we were not named and now they changed it to the surgery so die chirurgie which is far more inclusive i think so it, right that has been a great step right i mean i think it's it's speaking about barriers to women entering into the field of surgery in Germany, I like, I can't imagine, I would love for you to kind of talk about the barriers that you think exist. Because for me, it's just like, if literally the word for a surgeon is meant to be a man, how can I possibly think I should be in that world? That's, that's, well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's all about role models and it's all about showing that female surgeons belong as mm -hmm. well as male surgeons do. And I, I would love to just leave that behind and just think, okay, the best person should do the job. But we see, uh, we have two problems in Germany. First, we have that surgery and trauma surgery also is not um, very attractive as a specialty to be chosen. So we have a lot of problems generating um, younger surgeons. Right. There are a lot of, of students are interested in surgery when they start studying, but at the end of the when, when they do their finals, it's just about five percent of them considering going into surgical um, career. So mm -hmm. we somehow don't manage to to show them how great our our work is, right. independently of gender roles or whatever. So that's mm -hmm. one thing I think we need to tackle. We we need to to somehow make surgery sexy again to, right. <laughs> to show them that it's I mean it's the best job in the world isn't it so yeah so true um so we, we just need to to show that more and maybe put more emphasis in how 
mm-hmm. uh, we do our part of the education at uni at university right. and on the other hand um, what we can see is that um, like more than 60 percent of beginners in medicine are women mm-hmm. but the farther up you go the less women end up and in surgery it's it's extreme i mean i think yeah. we have seven percent of chief surgeons chief surgeons who are, who are orthopedic trauma surgeons yeah. which is almost nothing com- if you consider that half of the of the junior doctors are are women so they they get they get lost on the way and i think that's mm-hmm. something we we need to tackle urgently yeah i know and yeah. it's so true it's the same it's the same here where literally it's like 50 percent or more actually of medical students are women but right now we're only at like maybe 16 percent of residents are women and then the other level is like eight percent of attendings yeah. are women and i think like the barriers that people always talk about is like that orthopedics is so physical you know that you need all this strength to be able to Come do on. orthopedics and you're just like it's the technique like there are ways to do it and you know, it's nice. It's like on this podcast, we've had shorter um, surgeons, um, which mm-hmm. has been nice to have them like Dr. Selena Poon and Dr. Anna Miller and having them talk about how they did it, you know. And I remember Dr. Miller, she's a trauma surgeon as well. And she was saying basically like there's a scrub tech there. If I need to like have someone hold a leg and do something with it, I can just ask them to do it. You know what I mean? And it was something that was so matter of fact. And it was like, oh, yeah. Um, and I think the other barrier is kind of the, like, you'll never have a family if you do orthopedics, which is just, like, not true. You know, it's just, it, certainly there are, you know, it's the work-life integration, as, you know, Dr. Weiss talks about, where it's that very much, like, you have, sacrifices will be made in terms of how you organize your life um, and, um like, for example, my son eats better than I do. He has a nice, beautifully balanced meal, and I eat the scraps from when he, like, doesn't finish eating. You know what I mean? And that is just kind of one of those things where it's, um, you know, but you make it work, and it's and it, it can be done. But I think that there's just this perception of, you know, there's no way to do it. And it's just like, no, I mean, just understanding that you have to plan it and, organize like like pumping at work like how do you do that it can be done but it's just like figuring out the logistics of it takes a little bit of work but it's something that can be done and i think that's again um where role models come in you you just need to see that it can be done to to be able to imagine for yourself right right right. and and that's something i i love about the chirurgen and that you find role models for like every path you choose and Mm -hmm. and that's that's really so so that has been a a big game changer and and considering the work-life balance i i don't think that's a surgery thing i think that's a a doctor thing at at least right i mean we i I think you always have to somehow compromise and, and that has nothing to do with surgery or orthopedics and of course we have demanding hours but we're not the only ones i mean a lot of people work nights or work Mm -hmm. late or do a lot of stuff and somehow it it needs to be there need to be solutions right and we 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 just have to be enough asking for those solutions and and Mm -hmm. somehow it it will 
there have to be possibilities. Otherwise, also we won't have anyone more doing this job like in thirty years if they right. they if if they continue to like recruit the the, the chiefs from the thirty percent male who start doing the specialty, they it will die out. You're losing a lot of talent. You're mm-hmm. losing a lot of of potential along the way. So we need to tailor the the solutions um, to the needs of the of the current workforce, which is half of them are women. And so why? Yeah. So that's a a big job to do, I think. But <laughs> you know, I do think that a change needs to occur. Absolutely. Um, for example, I you know after Noah, I went back to work when he was six weeks old. And for anybody who has children, your child is not sleeping at that time. He, you know, normally kids are waking up every two to three hours. And to expect someone to go back to work when they are waking up every two to three hours to help take care of their six week old infant, it just doesn't make sense. And you know, I know that we kind of tout how, oh, you have, you only have to do 46 out of 52 weeks a year. Um, you know, that's what they say is that you are able to take more time for a maternity leave because you really only need to take 46 out of 52 weeks a year. And you're like, okay, so pause. So that's six weeks a year. So if you wanted to add it up, certainly you'd be able to do 12 weeks but it doesn't really work like that, right? Where it's just like, what junior resident in their right mind is only gonna take two weeks of vacation during their second year because they're like, you know what? I wanna save some time for maternity leave because I wanna get pregnant in my fourth year. Or what happens when a resident would like to have multiple children in residency? And so I think that there's a lot of clapping going on about this, and I'm certainly very grateful. I'm so grateful that I was able to take six weeks because a decade ago, women were only taking two weeks. But I don't think that we should be settling for this because the only reason why we're not able to change this is because hospitals and orthopedic departments for the most part are so dependent on the workforce that is the residency and there's no backup. You know, in an ideal world, if you have someone who wishes to take parental leave, you'd be able to have a PA who's able to come in and help take over the responsibilities, but we don't have that. And so those responsibilities, if anybody decides to take more leave, falls onto the other residents. And it's just, there's no backup plan, there's no support, and it just isn't realistic for us to be saying a resident can take three months if they wish to, because it logistically, it really just doesn't work. And so I, I really do think that a change needs to occur. That's really that's really interesting because it, obviously it's absolutely not okay to make you go back to work with a six week old kid at home. That's that's 
not it's not okay <laughs> on so many levels but um, i think we kind of have the opposite because we have a very very flexible schedule for um for residents or, or junior doctors we there are no fixed dates or fixed years right, you just right. need to say at the end okay i've done a total of six years but whether you spread those six years of education over 10 or 12 years or you do it the fastest possible it does not matter in theory right. so you can in theoretically go on indefinite leave and come back after two three five years and finish mm -hmm. your residency um and we do have a paid leave for for mothers and, and also for fathers although it's a yes. bit more complicated and i i think that's that's a big step we should we should tackle because i feel like one big thing about it making it more difficult to be a woman in, in surgery is that um maybe if the if the if the chiefs have to decide whether to hire a man or a woman they will tend to hiring the man because it's not that risky because in germany yeah. when if, if you get pregnant you're out for like one and a half years or two there are many yeah. hospitals who won't won't let you inside an or an operating theater if you get pregnant um wow. for and so and, and so you you'll be like doing maybe what work or so but you won't go in your education you won't go forward and you maybe will be on maternity for a year or a year and a half and so that's pretty risky for risky mm -hmm. for uh, for hospitals to have a lot of young women because they always fear they will get pregnant and drop out of the program right and so i think it should be equally risky to to have young men like around 25 to 40 who are maybe having a family because for them it should be equally easy to be at home for half a year or so to take yes. care of their kids right yes. we need to like decouple it from being the woman who has to be at home mm -hmm. and um, raising the kids to just being the parent person mm -hmm. being at home independently of who's uh, who that is yes so no, it's so true because, like, when I went back to work at six weeks, uh, my wife had to do a lot of work to help, right? And so, like, yeah, it, it not only affects me going back to work, but also affects my spouse. And, like, th their just function of living is also suffered because I go back when our son is still at a point in time when it's just, like, he was waking up every two to three hours. And that – and I think it's just sort of – it's, like, if there was a world – where we could find a balance where you're still allowed to operate when you're, you know, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, those sorts of things. Cause I'm yeah. certainly, I'm a functioning human being. Like I was, you're sure? I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, was like, <laughs> I mean, I certainly, I think one of my favorite, favorite, favorite stories was I was um, doing a hand case where um, I was third trimester waddling like a duck and my belly was rather large. And I was with my chair um, and we were basically, she's, she's the queen of the elbow. She's so good at elbow stuff and is literally what she's known for. And she's moving the hand and moving the elbow and the hand just keeps hitting my belly just because of the <laughs> way that we're positioned. And she literally goes, can you uh, move your belly? 
(laughs) And I'm like, yes, I'm sorry. So I had to kind of like scooch back from the surgery table just so that she could like range this hand because it just kept kind of hitting my belly. But it's just like, you know, it's just even for moments like that where like I was still functional. I, you know, was able to schedule my rotation such that, you know, during my third trimester, I was sitting down as a hand surgeon for a little bit. Um, But they're just, it's just so many stories. Um, But yeah, you're still a functioning human being. It doesn't mean that just because you're pregnant doesn't mean that you like, you know, yeah. I wish there was like an in-between land, you know? Yes. Me too. Me too. I know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I think, you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about kind of the barriers to, you know, female surgeons in Germany but I would love to sort of hear about the more positive light in what do you think that we uh, can learn from Germany? Like, what do you think that the status of German surgeons and what you all are doing, what is it that you think that we should be employing in our own communities? Paid maternity. maternity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I I think, um, yeah, we, we talk, have talked extensively about it, so, and I'm not a mom, so I'm not the person to advocate for it, but I think it should be absolutely normal, and there should be made space for, like, creating life. And, right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there should be made, made space for creating a new life, and you shouldn't have to squeeze that in and, like, pretending it's not happening, because otherwise you lose your rotations. That's just unhuman <laughs> i know i agree that's not good um yeah so i think i think we are maybe exaggerating that um by doing such extended leaves that maybe women don't come back to work because they have um, kids back to back and then, then they're out of work for four years or so right. but i i think um some solid middle ground should be found and you should absolutely adopt some some kind of appreciation for becoming a mom while yes. we're in training yes um yeah and we uh, i think what we've been doing pretty well over the last years uh, in germany is is just networking and starting to get um into the associations and also into somehow into how politics work and how mm-hmm. um surgery the how the um surgical associations work and just start to to being part of this as women i i don't know i think you have more advanced than we are in, in this case no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, je- I'm not sure <laughs> i'm jealous of how you um work with all the different subspecialty like all the different like endocrine and vascular and all those sorts of things like i'm really jealous about that that sounds so informative you know what i mean and like i we um i'm on a rotation where Last week, we did a journal, journal club with some rheumatologists. And I was like, I've never done this before. I was like, all right, let's do this. And so I got to pick the article. And I picked um, the um, AUKUS just kind of released their recommendations for, you know, different, you know, rheumatic medications and when to hold them, when to keep them going, when someone's doing a total knee, total hip replacement. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it was really cool to have like a room of rheumatologists literally talk about this paper and ask them questions and it was actually like extraordinarily informative and I was like this is fantastic um (laughs) and I would love to be able to have that opportunity to have those conversations with 
like to ask a plastic surgeon their thoughts on Vicryl. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, it's a type of braided suture. And I, I have different pe- different surgeons say different things, you know, about like some people hate Vicryl, other people use it for every single wound that they do. And it's just like, what's the truth, you know? And so hearing from people whose job it is to literally close complex wounds and what their thoughts are on Vicryl. I would love that journal club, you know? So I think that's mm-hmm. really, I'm going to try to employ that in my life to Do be that. able to talk to all the different specialties and really like get their thoughts on like what they do. Why do they do it? That's uh, yeah. I, I think that's great. And that's been one of the highlights of my past two years that joining um, die Chirurginnen and um, we have uh, we have a medical messenger which is uh, Europe based. I don't know if you know it. Vilo, it's called, mm-hmm. which is like a safe space because it's uh, it's encrypted, so you can share um, patient cases and, and oh. stuff. And so we do. It's like no hassle at all. I need mm-hmm. I need a plastic surgeon, and I see I, I join the plastic surgeons group, and then say, hey, I got a question. Or mm-hmm. We got this case. Who of you has an idea? And I, I get feedback from like 10 people or so in wow. two or three hours. It's it's really great. It's, it's um, changed a lot. That's yeah. really cool. So that's really cool. Yeah. And, and you, you, you don't feel, you never feel alone anymore. There's always, mm-hmm. there's always the, the tribe you've been looking for. Yes. Especially uh, when you're in the forest. It sounds like <laughs> in the black forest. <laughs> no, it's forest. a beautiful area. I, it's a beautiful <laughs> area. I love it here. And, and the new team is great. I'm really happy. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and uh, I'm going, I'm, I'm getting to do what I love, like trauma surgery. So right. That's good. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, I know that, I know we've talked a lot about kind of your past and what you've done, but I would love to speak about your future goals. And so I was hoping you can talk about what your goals are just clinically as well as your work with various organizations. Mm. Okay, so um, clinically, of course, I, I want to develop further as a trauma surgeon. Mm-hmm. I think what we are doing here, what um, I will get the opportunity to learn is, is to do spine spine cases and also a complex, uh, oh God, <laughs> I'm like just missing words in English. Uh, um, okay, spine cases and also complex pelvic cases. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to learn that. Right. Um, to learning that and um, I am doing a, a project a research project on how to how to um, make medical education or learning possible for extreme situations mm. which are not sh- trainable like you know there are some things that you just need to get done when they arise like the trauma thoracotomy and what maybe is is difficult to to teach because there won't be so many teaching opportunities mm. if mm-hmm. any at all and so we are trying to to get some um advancement here by putting together a course program which works with um, virtual reality and augmented reality and um, so that's what i well what i would like to explore more in the future considering a bit research like how can we how can we teach non-trainable situations for emergency mm. doctors or trauma surgeons? Um, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be yeah. great. Yeah. And um, that's it. Ca- career-wise, I think. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. 
yeah, I'm looking forward. Uh, in, in Germany, they're not so different. I think you have more different tracks between education and like clinical work. Is that mm -hmm, possible? Mm -hmm. We we don't have that. Mm -hmm. So I hope to be able to do a bit of both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. And yeah, I like that. And I think what I love about being a surgeon is you you never done learning, right? There's yeah. always something more you can get more into, and mm -hmm. uh, I love that. So I'm really looking forward to just being getting better at right. everything I do. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's it's so true. I love having a goal. Like I like yeah. my to do list is just like I love checking something off the box. <laughs> it's just like done, you know. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it is. It's also you also always uh, it's just such a sense of accomplishment just checking the box. It's, it's so and you need to write everything down so you can check a lot of boxes. Yeah. Even if I like didn't write it down and I did it, I then write it down for the sole purpose of being able to check the box off. Yes. And it still feels good, doesn't it? It feels so good. It's so good. Oh my goodness. It's so true. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Paula, I know that we've talked for, um, I've, I've loved this. Um, I would like to go into the final segment, which I okay. like to call the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every surgeon on the She Can Fix It podcast. So the first final five question is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? That's a hard one. I've thought a lot and I don't have an answer because it changes, depends on what I'm doing. I mean, right now I love um, those complex distal femurs mm. because I like exploring different uh, different ways of how to fix them and from where to come and which approach right. is best for which fracture pattern and am I going to try, try that nail plate combo I mm -hmm. read about on Twitter or am I going for <laughs> double plating and which kind of plates and where do the screws need to go and I, I, I'm really enjoying those complex cases because that's like where what I'm uh, what I'm yeah I, I like them right now so that's it and um when I was in my last hospital, I did a lot of hand surgery. So I liked uh, tendon repairs a lot because mm. I think it's it's a beautiful anatomy. Mm -hmm. And I like the results if they come to clinic afterwards and you see how they get better and they restart using the hand again. I, I think that's really also also very nice. So I, I did I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Right yeah. now, I'm I'm not doing so much hand surgery. So I'm I'm focusing on the major trauma stuff. So mm -hmm. for now, it would be distal femurs. Not all of them. Somehow, I hate. Some, sometimes, I, I hate them. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that would be my favorite procedure right now. I think. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Um, what are your go-to topics for presentations that you give at either conferences or grand rounds at your institution? Um. Yeah, I think I've mentioned that before. I'm somehow, I, I like uh, talking about uh, trauma or peri-arrest uh, thoracotomies because uh, that's a subject that's very controversially discussed in Germany right now. Um, and I, I trained with the Londoners, so mm -hmm. maybe I, I'm a bit biased because and you maybe you know they do a lot of um, pre-hospital trauma work and they do like clamp roadside clamshell thoracotomies like once a week or so and they have pretty good survivals wow um but they also have a very specialized team going out and they have a, right. a spectacular like feedback and learning curve mm -hmm. and they do uh, reviews of every case they do and so i i think they really have have 
very good conditions to deliver the best possible intervention. Right. And in Germany, there has been like an uprise of, of clamshell thoracotomies pre-hospitally for, for trauma reasons. Um, but I think we're not really we we're not really still sure if we want to have our emergency doctors do it or not, and if yes, under what circumstances. And I, I like to explore that a lot. Mm. Like, who should do it when, which cases, why, why not? What right. do we think, have to think about team approach wise? I, I mean, it's, it's a big field. And also technically, I mean, can every emergency, emergency physician do a clamshell? Probably yes, but can every one of them also perform the interventions needed once the chest is cracked? I'm not sure. So it's, it's an interesting topic. You can shed light on from a lot of, um, yeah. of uh, ways. Yeah, that's crazy. I've talked about that. Question number three. Uh, this is usually the hardest. What oh, no. is your, I know, what is your favorite story slash memory as a surgeon? Um, yeah, I also thought a lot about this one. Thanks for giving me some time to prepare. Um, and I mean, a lot of stories come to mind of doing a procedure and then having a happy patient. And right. so coming patients coming back after big injuries, coming back after rehab and being like just mm -hmm. whole persons again, talking and walking and having a life that's always great. But like the thing, one of my, my very precious memories, um, which I really like is uh, it, it's two or three years ago, I was I was on call in in my last hospital and there was like a petrochanteric fracture mm -hmm. to be nailed with a, uh, I don't know, may I say, uh, may I say industry names? Yeah. It was a, a gamma nail. Mm -hmm. Gamma. Mm -hmm. So a pretty simple, pre no procedures, simple, but it's yeah. like not a super advanced trauma case. And usually mm -hmm. I would have the resident do it, mm -hmm. but the resident was, uh, he was busy. I don't know. And it was three o'clock in the morning and was like, okay, I'm going to do this case. And the, the script nurse was, um, one of the most experienced scrub nurses and I don't know what happened but the stars aligned and we almost immediately entered a state of flow mm. and we like just danced through this case which was like just the simple protrochanteric fracture but I, I, we did not speak I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we used any words we just I always had the instrument in hand I needed and we were we were just so synchronously going right. through these, this case, it was such, so that's in my brain, it's ingrained as the perfect operation because we're, mm. we're just, it, we were in a state of flow from the first cut until we finished it. And it was, it went so well. I've never achieved this again, but it's like my, my go-to thought if I know how it should feel to do the perfect operation. So right. this was really great. Great. So that's one of my favorite memories. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> Having your, your favorite scrub text when you enter into the room and you see them and you're just like, today's going to be a great day, guys. Like you're, it's just, I like yesterday was, I was on call and I like came into the room and I saw one of my favorite scrub techs, Byron in the room. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you guys, this is what a day we're going to have. This is going to be amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, and it's just when you see your favorite people and you're just like, this is going to be great. You know? Yes. Yes. A good team changes. Everything. A good team changes everything yeah. for sure. Um, <sighs> Question number four, uh, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Um, I like music a lot. 
like making music. I've played oh, in nice. an orchestra for a lot of time. And um, right now, in the pan during, during the pandemic, I, I started piano playing, and I'm oh. just like uh, nerding about that right now and trying to to advance in that. So I I love that. Um, and I also like being outdoors. That's why I moved back closer to the mountains because just right. just like hiking and climbing and yeah, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. In the with friends in in the black in forest. forest. Right now, for now, in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> I need I need to see pictures of this place. I um... yes, I will send you a lot of. Pictures. Okay, please, good. Yeah, I will. Oh my goodness! All right, my last question for you: What advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? I think it's important to never stop learning mm -hmm. and to ne to never stop improving or trying to improve and. I also think it's important to have like a certain compassion for yourself and also mm. um, also to take good care of yourself because it's it's so easy to get sucked into into the hospital and to, I think it's it's just um, to deliver the best possible job and to be the best possible surgeon you mm. have to be okay so right. I think you you yeah you need to, you need to balance this always strive getting better, staying humble mm -hmm. and taking good care of yourself. I think that's what I would say. Awesome. Well, Paula, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, and I'm really looking forward to those pictures of the black forest. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I had a great time and, uh, I'm looking forward to the next episodes you're going to release and I'm, I'm a great listener. And I am also um, always advocating for your podcast over here. So if you have like a spike from the Black Forest in Germany, that would be me and my peers <laughs> listening to you. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Paula Beck. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you a new episode next month.